Ohio, ready for some quick mental health facts? Let's go. Nearly 2 million Ohioans live with a mental health condition. In the U.S., more than 50% of people will be diagnosed with a mental illness in their lifetime. Depression is a leading cause of disability worldwide. So why are some of us still stigmatizing people living with a mental health condition when we know all of this? Let's listen to the facts and beat the stigma. Ohio, challenge what you know about mental health at beatthestigma.org. Want to learn how you can make smarter decisions with your money? Well, I've got the podcast for you. I'm Sean Piles, and I host NerdWallet's Smart Money Podcast. Our show features our team of nerds, personal finance experts in credit cards, banking, investing, and more. And they'll help you make the most of your money while cutting through the clutter and misinformation in today's world of personal finance. You'll get clarity on strategies to help you build your wealth, invest wisely, shop for financial products, and plan for major life events. Listen to NerdWallet's Smart Money Podcast wherever you get your podcasts. Welcome, everyone, to another episode of the Most Notorious Podcast. I'm Eric Rivenis. Hope your holiday season preparations are going well so far. Great to have you with me. And it is so great to have Charles Oldham back. He was first on the show in May of 2022 to tell us about his book, Ship of Blood, Mutiny and Slaughter Aboard the Harry A. Berwind and the Quest for Justice. At the end of the interview, he talked briefly about another book he had written back in 2018 called The Senator's Son, The Shocking Disappearance, The Celebrated Trial, and The Mystery That Remains a Century Later. And that book is the subject of our interview today. Thank you so much for returning to the show. Well, thank you for having me. Yes. So when did you first come across this story, and why did it interest you so much? Well, I came across it just by chance. And this is, uh, you may be surprised, but this is going back uh, quite a ways. I came across the story back when I was in in middle school, actually. I was about 13 years old. And when I was that age, I was a a fairly precocious history nerd. And I I liked stories about old true crimes and that type of thing. And I happened to come across this book that was written back in the 1950s, and it was a, um, a collection of stories, of old true crime stories from North Carolina history uh, in years past. And each, um, each of these stories contained in the book was just a, a basic summary. It was about 20 pages or so. But one of those stories was about a case that happened back in the year 1905 in Currituck County in eastern North Carolina. And it was a story about a young, a young boy who disappeared very mysteriously. And it went into the fact that the boy's father was a local politician. And there were rumors that the, the child had been uh, kidnapped by a man who had a political grudge against the boy's father. And it, like I said, it was just a sort of a thumbnail sketch of the story. It just gave the basic facts. And after I read that when I was a kid... I came away thinking, well, you know, there must there must be something more to the story. The way the the way the story was described in that book was that the defendant in the case 
who supposedly had a political grudge against the boy's father, was angry at the boy's father, who was a state senator, because the senator had had been a supporter of prohibition legislation. And this defendant was well known in the community as a bootlegger. And so for that reason, he supposedly kidnapped the senator's child and either murdered him or caused him to disappear in some other way. But I came away from that thinking, well, that just doesn't make sense. I mean, it's, it's hard to believe that someone would, would do that to, to a young child, commit a crime like that, with no, no more of a motive than just a political grudge over liquor legislation. And, you know, I, I thought about that for a while, and the story stayed with me for a long time. And as far as I knew, no one else had, uh, had uh, researched the case any more deeply than that, and no one had written a definitive account of the story. And so I thought, well, you know, at some point it would be really great if someone, if someone did that, did the research and, you know, gave the story the, the kind of historical treatment that it deserves. So a number of years later, after I'd been practicing law for a while, I decided, well, the heck with it, I'm going to give it a shot. I'm going to look into this story. I'm going to go through all the newspaper accounts and the historical record, and I'm going to see if I can figure out what happened here. And so that's, that's how I came to, to tell the story. And what I discovered was there actually was quite a bit more to the story. And when you get down into the, the brass tacks of what, what North Carolina politics was like back in the early 1900s, you know, it's, it's not all that, all that inconceivable that a crime like that could have been committed. And of course, we can, we can get into the details on that. Yeah, yeah, for sure. So let's start, if you don't mind, with the town of Poplar Branch, North Carolina. Uh, 1905 is the year when much of this story takes place. What kind of community was it? Well, at the time, it was, it was a farming community. It was, uh, it was right, on the, right on the shore of what they call Currituck Sound. It's right in the, the coastal, uh, you might call it the inner coast of North Carolina, not too far from the Outer Banks. And back in 1905, it was just a very small community with, uh, of uh, some, some farms. And uh, also, this is a, something that's unique about that area. It was, a, it was an area that was very well known for, uh, for duck hunting. Uh, that was one of the, uh, one of the main um, sources of livelihood back, back in those days. Uh, people would come from all over to to hunt the ducks and the geese that flocked along the along the Currituck Sound. So it was a very rural rural area at the time, and uh, the folks who were involved in this in this particular crime were were local farmers, basically. But I mean that that was typical of North Carolina back in the early 1900s. So the Beasley family, Sam Beasley, his wife Kathy, they were a pretty prominent family in the area, right? Oh, they were, yes. Yeah, Sam Beasley uh, was the local politician that I mentioned just a moment ago. And uh, in 1905, when the incident occurred, he was the uh, state senator who represented Currituck County in the North Carolina legislature at the time. And he had actually been a state legislator for several years up to that point. He was first elected in, uh, in 1898. He and his wife, Cassie, and they had, uh, they had three children. And they, they lived in a, a very, very attractive white farmhouse in this uh, in this community, Papa Branch, at the time, and their uh, their youngest child, youngest of the three kids, was a a son. His name was Kenneth, and he was eight years old. And he he's the uh, he is the the senator's son of the uh, of the title of the book. So, how much is known about Kenneth? Was he a good kid? Well, there's uh, there's not that much 
personal recollection of what his personality was like at the time. But you can you can sort of imagine when you think about you know children back in the early 1900s who grew up on isolated farms out in the countryside. What would you imagine the children spent most of their time doing? Most of the time, if he wasn't you know doing chores on the farm at home, as most children did at the time, he also had a school to attend. He uh, he attended a uh, a little uh, two room rural schoolhouse, which was about half a mile down the road from his house, which uh, which actually comes to play in, in the story. But um, you know, I would imagine that um, you know any time that he wasn't uh, wasn't either either helping out on the farm at home or if he wasn't in school. You could just imagine that he and uh, he and the other kids in the neighborhood were probably out roaming around, playing games, just uh, doing the things that uh, that children did back in those days before before TV and before Minecraft and before internet and that type of thing. He was only eight years old, so he was. We're talking about roughly a, a third grader by today's category. Right. Yeah. So the morning of February thirteenth, nineteen o five. It was a pretty ordinary one for the Beasley family. Kenneth, as usual, he woke up, he got ready for school. That's true, yeah. And um, his, uh, his daily routine back then, and this would have been true for his, uh, his uh, older sister as well. The kids, they, they walked to school. The, uh, the schoolhouse, as I mentioned, was about a, about a half a mile down the, uh, the dirt road from the house where they lived. And that was, that was nothing out of, out of the ordinary. Um, what was unusual was what happened later in the day when the kids went out for recess as part of their usual daily routine, but uh, things went really badly after that. Right. So his teacher was Miss Nina, Nina Harrison. And it was just a, like a regular morning, right? His cousin Benny remembered Kenneth getting his shoes wet when he had walked through some slush, so his shoes were drying off in a corner. They went through their regular morning school routine, and then they all went out to recess, where Kenneth spent time with his friends. But, but he was the only one of his classmates not to return, right? Yes, exactly. Uh, the kids all went out for recess around noon. And what they did was they just went back into the, the backyard behind this little schoolhouse that they attended, which backed up against a, uh, a stretch of swampland, some very dense, densely forested, uh, swampy woods. And as it turned out, uh, Kenneth uh, was the only, the only one of the children who did not return to the schoolhouse when the bell rang at the end of the, the recess hour. And what his teacher heard from the other kids was that he had wandered back into the, uh, back into the woods. And for some reason, he didn't return. And it was Benny, right, who, who reported that Kenneth had told him at the end of recess that he had just wanted to go a little farther into the woods and would be back in a bit. And at first, when Kenneth doesn't return, there's not a giant concern. When the, the principal, as an example, is informed of Kenneth's absence, he tells one of the students just to go out and look for him. Yeah, that's true. Um, the teacher and the, the principal dispatched a couple of the other kids down to see if they could find Kenneth and, and bring him back, but they couldn't find him. And it was also around this time, uh, bearing in mind that it was a, this was a pretty cold day in, uh, in February, 
And it was also around this time that uh, it started to rain outside, and as the temperature dropped, it started to turn into snow. And they began to think that maybe he, maybe Kenneth had gotten gotten lost back in the woods. And that if that if that was the case, and they really needed to needed to find him because otherwise he would he would get cold, and he might um, if he really was lost, he might uh, die from hypothermia if they didn't find him. So at, it was at that point that people realized that it. It was a more more serious matter. So how is law enforcement first alerted? How do the Beasleys learn the news? And when does the search begin? Well, uh, Senator Beasley actually was not on the scene at the time. He was, uh, he was up in Raleigh because the uh, state legislature was in session at the time. And um, what they did, the principal and the teacher, they, they sent out the word to the folks in the in the surrounding area. Now, bear in mind again, this is a, a relatively sparsely populated area, but the people people who lived there were were duck hunters and fishermen, and so they were they were well accustomed to maneuvering through the through the woods and the swamps and that type of thing. So they formed a search party with however many people they could put together, and they started combing through the woods. And they realized that there was some some urgency to the situation because they thought they had a missing child and he might he might really be in danger. But uh, they searched all through the rest of the day and even into the night, you know, carrying torches and um, whatever, whatever they'd find. But um, they couldn't find the child. And they actually, they kept up the search for the next couple of days, but they couldn't find any trace of him in the woods. So this obviously causes a, a large level of, of concern. Everyone is out looking for him. And a letter comes in, and the writer of the letter mentions that Kenneth had, in fact, been spotted, or a boy that looked like Kenneth had been spotted heading out of town in the company of a strange man. Can you talk about that? Yeah. yeah. And this is where the story gets a little bit, uh, a little bit, um, you know, hazy. And um, it's a little bit complicated to describe, but it was uh, just a few days. I think it was about five or six days after Kenneth went missing. There was a story printed in the Raleigh News and Observer, which was, which at the time was one of the one of the major, probably the major newspaper that most people read in in Eastern North Carolina at the time. And someone someone apparently had written in to the editors of, of the News and Observer, claiming that essentially that uh, that Kenneth had been kidnapped. And the the person whoever wrote this letter, um, they were never identified. They never came forward and said said who they were. And in fact, there's even some question about whether there actually was a letter to the editor. It might also be that some that people were just speculating about, about what had happened to the boy. But anyway, if you read this story in the paper, you would have seen that um, someone apparently had written into to the, to the editors and said that they had seen someone in the vicinity of Poplar Branch driving down a, down a dirt road in a in a horse-drawn buggy, and they noticed that this that this man had a had a young child in the in the buggy with with him, and apparently the child had seemed to be in distress of some sort. He was crying, and the and the the man who was driving the driving the buggy was trying to shush him in some way, and apparently the uh, this buddy, the driver, and the child were headed north towards Norfolk, Virginia, because if you if you look on the map, that's that's the direction that they would have been headed in. And this letter 
Again, if there was a letter, whoever wrote this letter uh, pointed the finger specifically at a man named Joshua Harrison, who was a well-known farmer and landowner in Trotuck County. The letter strongly hinted that Joshua Harrison was the man who was driving the buggy and appanned was suspected to have been absconding with this child in his wagon. And this is where it gets, uh, where really the political angle comes into it. Joshua Harrison was a, as I mentioned, he was a well-known, well-known figure in the area. His brother-in-law was a former governor of North Carolina and also a former ambassador and United States senator. So Mr. Harrison had political connections of his own. And Joshua Harrison was also the father of Nina Harrison, who was Kenneth's teacher at school. So you can hear the plot thickening here a bit. Yeah, yeah, for sure. So this character, Harrison, as you've already said, he had some sort of a feud going on with Sam Beasley. But to add to all of the drama, Harrison had had a shady past. He had been in trouble as a younger man. Yeah, that's true. He was in his uh, in his mid to late 60s in 1905, and he had married well because uh, he had married the sister, he had, or he had married into a prominent family, and his wife was the sister of a fellow named Chuck Thomas Jarvis, and he was he was the, the former governor and senator that I mentioned. Uh, but despite that, you're, you're absolutely correct. I mean, Mr. Mr. Harrison had a checkered past because on at least two different occasions, this was back in the 1860s and 1870s when he was a considerably younger man, but he had been put on trial for murder twice in Trotuck County. Once he'd been put on trial for murdering another, another young boy who was uh, around the same age that uh, Kenneth Beasley was in 1905. And another time he had been put on trial for murdering his own father. He was found not guilty on both of those counts. But, uh, I mean, you, if you just contemplate that for, for a moment, I mean, how many, how many people can you imagine have been, have been put on trial for murder twice and been, and been found not guilty? Right. And that, that possibility that he murdered a child. Um, Harrison claimed in court, apparently, that uh, he had shot, shot the child accidentally. And that's all we know. And that's, uh, I, I looked at, I, I found out as much as I could. I, I knew the, just from the court records, I knew, I knew the name of the child and I could, I could see that, uh, who his parents were. And I could see that they lived in Currituck County at the time, although they apparently moved away afterward. But, uh, that, uh, I, I hate to say it, but that, that is really still a, still a blank spot in the, in the historical record. You know, I would love to have known more about that, but, um, you know, what we know is just that he, he had allegedly shot and killed a young boy who, was, who, again, was about eight years old at the time. Yeah, and his uh, father, his father's death. What happened between them, do you think, that led to that? That also is another mystery. And, you know, what, I, what the court records reveal is that, you know, Mr. Harrison had, had several siblings. Uh, and at the time that his, his father passed away, there were there was also some civil liti- civil litigation pending between the siblings, which I suspect was related to the disposition of the father's estate. So I'm not sure exactly what to make of that, but it, it's possible that 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 murder charge might have been something that was trumped up, maybe by the other family members who were trying to exclude Joshua Harrison from his share of the inheritance. Perhaps I mean that that's one possibility. 
Apart from that, I don't really know what happened, except that he was he was eventually put on trial and he was found not guilty. So apparently the the case against him didn't appear to be very strong. Uh, even if he was innocent of murder decades earlier, he still had a reputation in 1905 of being tempestuous, uh, quick to anger, right? That's that's very true, and it's uh, you can you can see that just from court records again. They don't they don't reveal very much, but when you go through the court docket books, say in the 1880s and the 1890s, you see t- you see Joshua Harrison's name quite a few times. He was charged with several other things, uh, like disposing of uh, disposing of property illegally, but also for a couple of assaults, assault and battery. His name is found charged with things like that. In most of those cases, though, he was found not guilty. But you know, when someone when someone has a rap sheet like that, uh, a a history of having that many accusations brought against him, you you figure that you're dealing with a pretty pretty irascible character. Uh, that that's a good way to put it. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> uh, so tell us about Nina Harrison's letter, and what about it you found suspicious? Well. When the local newspapers were reporting on the story, you know, in the first few days after after Kenneth disappeared, everybody was speculating about what had happened. And after Kenneth had been missing for five or six days, even after all the local the local hunters and the fishermen had been sifting through the woods and they had searched out the searched out the swamp and so forth, when they didn't find any trace of him, you know, they figured that you know if he had gotten lost in the woods and if he had if he had died from the cold then they they would have found his remains somewhere this is a little bit macabre but um, some of the hunters mentioned that uh, they kept they kept watching the sky for buzzards knowing that uh, you know if the child had died in the woods that um, buzzards would have been attracted to the to the remains so they they looked out for that but they never they saw no sign of that so when they found no trace of him most people in the community uh, concluded that there probably was foul play that someone had snatched the child, and as I mentioned earlier in the news in the uh, News Observer story, there were already rumors floating around that Joshua Harrison was involved in some way. And shortly after that, uh, the boy's teacher, Miss Nina, who again was Joshua Harrison's daughter, she was quoted in one of the one of the papers saying that, um, "Well, oh, this is just such a tragedy, and you know, it's a shame that." That, that Kenneth is uh, is no more, and he's not going to be returning home. And she talked about how how aggrieved the the Her- the, uh, the Beasley family were going to be, and she she expressed her own her own regret and her own grief over having having lost a, a student whom she she apparently really liked and cared about. One thing that people did find suspicious about about that was that so uh, when the teacher was saying all this, it sounded like. She was already convinced that the child was deceased and would never be returning home. When other people in the community were were thinking that, you know, if he's been kidnapped, then the kidnapper's probably holding him for ransom and probably wants to return the child in exchange for some money or something like that. So some people thought it suspicious that um, the child's teacher would assume just offhand that he that he was dead in that way and and assume that he would not be returning home unless she had some kind of some kind of inside information and was trying to convince people that he had just gotten lost in the woods when in fact most people thought that that was not the case. We will be back after these brief messages. 
there, I'm Dylan Lewis, one of the hosts of Motley Fool Money. Each weekday on Motley Fool Money, we talk through the business news you need to know and the stories moving stocks on Wall Street. On weekends, we dive into the industries shaping tomorrow and host the experts, authors, and executives that understand them. Tune in for insights, a long-term perspective on investing, and of course, stock ideas, plenty of them. To quote a listener, it pays to listen. Check us out and subscribe wherever you listen to podcasts. Welcome to From Beneath the Hollywood Sign. If you love old movies, Hollywood history, or the golden age of filmmaking, you've come to the right place. This is the podcast that talks about amazing stories of Tinseltown from another era and fascinating conversations with writer-producer Steve Kubine and actress-writer Nan McNamara. One particular argument, he ended up dislocating Ava's jaw. <gasps> Ava, she was such a tough cookie. Rather than cry or scream or anything like that, she... Or she, call the police. Or call the police like she should have, exactly. <laughs> What does she do? She takes an ashtray and she knocks him over the head and knocks him unconscious. That's how she fought back. She didn't know what to do, so she called Louis B. Mayer. I think I've killed Howard Hughes. What do I do? Revisit a time when the pictures were still big and everyone was ready for their close-up. When you want Tyrone Power instead of Tom Hardy, Jennifer Jones instead of Jennifer Lawrence, or Robert Mitchum rather than Robert Pattinson, then From Beneath the Hollywood Sign is the gin joint for you. Throughout history, royals across the world were notorious for incest. They married their own relatives in order to consolidate power and keep their blood blue. But they were oblivious to the havoc all this inbreeding was having on the health of their offspring. From Egyptian pharaohs marrying their own sisters to the Habsburgs' notoriously oversized lower jaws, I explore the most shocking incestuous relationships and tragically inbred individuals in royal history. And that's just episode one. On the History Tea Time podcast, I profile remarkable queens and LGBTQ plus royals, explore royal family trees, and delve into women's medical history and other fascinating topics. I'm Lindsay Holiday, and I'm spilling the tea on history. Join me every Tuesday for new episodes of the History Tea Time podcast, wherever fine podcasts are enjoyed. And we have returned. So in your book, you compare this case to the Charlie Ross case in 1874. Yes. Would you summarize that that case, that story for us, and what the similarities are to Kenneth Beasley's case in your mind? Yeah. Charlie Ross, that was a case that happened in Philadelphia, and it's best known as the first ransom kidnapping that ever happened in the United States. Uh, young boy, he was about four years old, was uh, kidnapped uh, from his, his family's front lawn in suburban Philadelphia. And um, shortly after that, the, the, the people who snatched the child communicated with, with his parents and made a ransom demand. And this was a sensational story all over the country because no such crime had ever occurred in, in the United States up to that point. And it struck everyone as being just uh, atrociously cruel and sadistic and just unprecedented, which it, which it was. The aftermath of the kidnapping is, is a little bit complex, but um, the boy's father, Charlie's father, tried to communicate with the kidnappers 
and this was all done behind the scenes, but he, he made some attempts to try to, to make contact with them and actually pay the ransom. But he had, he had to do that secretly because he was under, under a good bit of pressure in the public because the press was reporting on his every move. And a lot of, a lot of journalists and politicians and people like that were, were saying that he really should not pay the ransom. He shouldn't reward this type of criminal behavior even in an attempt to try to get his, get his child back because that would be a, an irresponsible thing to do and it would encourage other, other kidnappings and that type of thing. So the boy's father was walking a very, very fine line and trying to be an upstanding citizen and also try to get, get his child back. So that trauma went on for several months. I forget exactly how, how, much, how much longer it, uh, it took, but it was almost a year later. Uh, the kidnappers were actually found they were they were in the process of burglarizing a house in New York, some distance from Philadelphia, and they were both they were both shot and killed while they were in the process of stealing from this house. But one of the guys, uh, even though he had been shot, he lived just long enough to utter a confession. He said, "Yeah, my partner and I here, we were the ones who stole the Rothschild, and I don't know where he is right now. My partner over here, he he knew where he is, but." Um, the child will be released within the next few days, and then he died. The child was never found, though, so it was just a very sad situation all around. But uh, anyway, it was remembered as you know, it was the first such case that ever occurred. And when Kenneth Beasley disappeared later on, this was about 30-some years later, people started, started thinking about that also, even though it wasn't clear at first that a ransom demand had been made in, in the Beasley case, but everybody noticed the similarities. Very interesting, yeah. So Joshua Harrison was arrested, indicted, and he took as his attorney his brother-in-law, the former governor. That's true. It's interesting, though, that uh, he was not, Harrison was not actually accused, and he was not indicted until a full year and a half after Kenneth disappeared. Kent disappeared in February of 1905, and it was not until, uh, I think it was September of 1906, that the charges were brought. And um, later on in the book, I speculate about uh, what, might have, what might have led to the, uh, the delay in that. But I mean, frankly, I think that's the biggest mystery of all, as to what in the world was going on in the 18 months between the kidnapping and the, uh, and the charges. But yes, uh, Mr. Harrison, once he, was, once he was charged with the kidnapping, he did retain his brother-in-law, the former governor and senator, uh, Thomas Jarvis, and he also retained a fellow named Charles Acock, who was also a former governor of North Carolina. Um, so those were his two lead attorneys, and he retained also a couple a couple of other attorneys. So he had four four defense attorneys at the time, which was very unusual for any type of any type of criminal case in North Carolina back in those days. So he was he was well defended. And and very interestingly, Sam Beasley, father of Kenneth, basically takes charge of the prosecution, right? Yeah. And, uh, you know, the, the rules have changed since then. Uh, but back, back then, it was, um, it was typical if a, if a crime victim's family had, uh, had the money to do it, then they could, they could retain special prosecutors to prosecute the case for them. And that's what Senator Beasley did. He, he brought in a couple of, uh, couple of the uh, prominent attorneys in the, in the area, and they became the prosecutors on his behalf. So the trial, which actually uh, took place in early 1907, the trial was actually in Elizabeth City, North Carolina, which is about, uh, about 20 miles away 
from uh, from Currituck County. Um, they had to move the trial because of uh, the publicity and uh, perceived hostility toward the defendant in Currituck County. But uh, anyway, it, it made for a very, very interesting uh, courtroom drama because most of the high-profile legal talent in that part of North Carolina was involved in this case because it was such a such an important uh, and um, conspicuous case. In those 18 months, was Joshua Harrison uh, just kind of living his life, going along as normal? And that that's the real mystery. That's what I, that was what I most wanted to find out was what was what was going on during that time period because right after after Kenneth disappeared. When, when Senator Beasley was quoted in the papers, he said, well, you know, I firmly believe that my son has been kidnapped and I believe he's being held for ransom and I want to do whatever I can to get my child back. So essentially trying to signal his willingness to negotiate with the kidnapper. But at the same time, you know, he had to be, he had to be cautious about that because bearing in mind he was a public official and there were certain demands upon him in terms of civic responsibility, and he had to, he had to be cautious that he wasn't giving in to criminality. And it was the same pressure that Charlie Ross's father had, had faced in, in the same situation. So that was the biggest question in my mind: was was there something going on behind the scenes, out of the out of the eyes of the, the reporters, journalists, and that type of thing? Was there some kind of Back, back channel negotiation going on between Senator Beasley and the kidnapper. And if Senator Beasley suspected, as other people seemed to, that Joshua Harrison was a kidnapper, was he trying to reach out to him and cut a deal? Maybe do some kind of, um, some kind of backroom exchange of money or something like that. So that was the biggest question I had. And, you know, I did find some clues, some clues here and there, but nothing, nothing definitive one way or the other. What I came away from, or what I came away with, was basically a suspicion that uh, there probably was an attempt to to pay the ransom and to get his child back, but the transaction fell through in one way or another, and that's what eventually resulted in the criminal charges being filed. Huh. So there were some really interesting moments that happened in this trial and one of them was when this information about a pocket knife was presented a pocket knife supposedly given to kenneth what was the significance of that yeah that was uh, that was something that um you know senator beasley testified to at the trial he mentioned that uh just um actually the very the very last night before kenneth went missing when the family was all at, at home in Poplar Branch, Kenneth came up to his father and showed him this little pocket knife that he had. And his father had never seen this pocket knife before, and he was—he said that he was just mildly curious about where Kenneth had gotten it, but he, he didn't really give it much thought at the time because there was no, no reason to. He figured that uh, Kenneth had probably gotten it from one, of his, from one of his friends, maybe traded it, to him for some marbles or something like that. The type of thing the children would have done back then. But the significance of it was that, um, or the hint was that perhaps someone had, someone had given the pocket knife to Kenneth as some sort of inducement, as a gift, maybe to persuade him to walk back into the woods at recess for some, for some nefarious reason. 
So that was um, that, that's one of the one of the small clues that uh, that were that were hinted at at the trial. Yeah. So an important part of, of the trial would be the testimony by the witnesses who claimed to have seen the man and the boy in the buggy. Prosecution witnesses said it was definitively Joshua Harrison. Defense witnesses said it was not. Yes. Yeah. And at that point, you, you, start to, you start to speculate about, you know, one of those people who testified for the prosecution who said that they did see Joshua Harrison driving the, uh, driving the cart with the mule, with the child in the buggy and so forth. You figure one of those people was probably the one who wrote that letter to the, to the newspaper some, some months ago, or at least that's, that's what you would, you would imagine. Uh, as you would also imagine, you know, when those people gave that testimony, the defense, the defense attorneys came in and said, and asked them, well, if you, if you saw this going on, you know, if you saw a man driving away from the scene with a child in the buggy, and shortly afterward, you heard the story about the child who had gone missing in the woods, then why did you not alert the authorities? Why didn't you call the sheriff at the time? Which was a perfectly fair question to ask. And the only answer that those witnesses could give was, well, I just didn't think it was my business. So that kind of left the, the doubt hanging in the air. You know, why didn't they act sooner? Did they actually go to the sheriff and make a report about it? Or was it also possible that maybe they, maybe these people, after seeing this, they just went back to Sam Beasley and said, Joshua Harrison is the one who kidnapped your child, and you need to do something about that and reach out to him and either send the sheriff after him or pay him the money that he wants. So that's, that's, that's what a lot of the testimony in the, in the courtroom tended to focus on, was who saw what and how credible were they and if they really did see what they claimed to have seen, then why didn't they act on it sooner? One of the more sensational bits of testimony came from a man named Thomas Klingman Woodhouse. He said that he had run into Joshua Harrison not long after Kenneth had disappeared. And he said that Harrison had said some pretty callous things about Kenneth's disappearance. And I wrote this down. He said, Beasley's making a damned sight of fuss about one little boy. Give us two women, and we can make us two nicer boys in a few minutes. That, that's a pretty cold-hearted statement, right? Oh, yeah. Yeah, that, that fellow Woodhouse is a, uh, I think he's a, he's a pretty, pretty interesting figure in this whole thing. And what it, what it seems to me was that he was, he was probably a, an intermediary between, between Beasley and Harrison. And uh, you know, Woodhouse claimed that um, after he had that conversation with Harrison that you just described, he, he, uh, Woodhouse also claimed that Harrison had um, told him that he did, in fact, have the child in his custody. He was keeping him hidden somewhere. And Harrison supposedly was complaining that Beasley had never offered enough money, and if he would just do so, then he would let the child go. And Woodhouse also testified that he also claimed that he went to Sam Beasley, told him this, and Beasley then urged him to go back to Harrison and say, "Oh, I'll I'll pay you whatever whatever money you want. I'll I just want my want my child back." And then, according to Woodhouse, apparently Harrison just he clammed up and didn't want to talk about it any further. Um, Woodhouse testified to all all of this in court, of course. 
and supposedly it was it was just after that when when Beasley decided to go public and pursue the criminal charges against against Harrison. I have frankly I have some doubts about exactly how it went down. I, I think the story that uh, that Woodhouse told was frankly a little bit melodramatic and it, seemed, it sounded a little bit made up. But I do there is some reason to suspect that uh, that Woodhouse may very well have been the been the conduit the the guy who was who was set up to do the communication and to try to try to work out the deal but it uh, but it fell through for for whatever reason so did Harrison have an alibi well the alibi that he stated in court was that he was uh, was that um, on the day of the disappearance he was simply at home on his farm working in his uh, in his fields along with his family members and uh, as you might imagine, he got he had his wife and his uh, children and in-laws who all took the stand and testified to that effect. So it really it came down to a, to a question of credibility. Uh, the jurors had to um, had to compare, you know, who was testifying for the prosecution and how credible were they? Did, did they have any reason to to lie to make up to make up a false story about Harrison, as opposed to you know Harrison's alibi witnesses who most of whom were his immediate family members and might very well have had a motivation to, to cover for him. So in the end, uh, it, it seemed apparent to the jury that uh, the prosecution witnesses seemed to have less of a credibility problem than the defense witnesses. I don't know anything about farming in, in North Carolina, but was there a lot to be done in the fields in February? Uh, yeah, that, that's a very fair question, because, uh, you know, if you recall on that particular day when the boy went missing, uh, it was raining and snowing outside. And uh, as you might imagine, that was, a quest- that was a question that the prosecutors asked on cross-exam. They said, what do you mean you were out in the fields working when it was snowing and raining? Yeah. So you spent much of your career as a criminal defense attorney. Mm-hmm. And I'm just curious, did you approach this case from that perspective, or did you try to step away from that and look at things from a broader perspective? Yeah, well, you're right. I mean, for most of most of the time that I was a practicing attorney, I was, and most of the time when I was doing criminal law, I was a, I was a criminal defense attorney. So I sort of I sort of put myself in the shoes of you know Thomas Jarvis and Charles Aycock and the guys who were who were called upon to to represent this particular client, and you'd have to face the fact that they had a difficult task. They had this this client who had a as we've already noted he had a very checkered history. He had political connections of his own, but he was well known in the community as being a pretty disreputable type, not just as a as a bootlegger. But also as just an, an all-around, all-around bully and angry, aggressive person. And now he was accused of having kidnapped a child, uh, the type of act that is strikes a lot of people as being a very cruel and sadistic type of type of crime. So I was, uh, you know, I was thinking, well, how in the world are they going to are they going to pitch this in court? Um, how are they going to prevent try to prevent this man from being being crucified by? raw emotion when the jurors are probably going to feel a lot of sympathy for the grieving parents of this child and so forth. 
so yeah, I, that was def, that was definitely weighing on my mind as I, as I went through it. And, um, I, I had to conclude in the end that the attorneys who represented Joshua Harrison, they just had a very difficult task and, uh, the trial that their, that their client received, I have to conclude that it was not a fair trial. I mean, if for one thing, just because the, the rules of court were different at the time and uh, the prosecutors got away with a lot of, a lot of tactics that simply aren't, aren't allowed anymore. But, um, you know, just the fact that of the, just the nature of the alleged offense and the political sentiment of the day and you know, the prejudice against the defendant, even if he did it, he had the deck stacked against him from, from the beginning. So it's hard to, it was hard for him to get a, get a fair trial under those circumstances. Would you have done something differently if you had been defending Joshua Harrison? I'm trying to think back to, you know, the, the specific people who testified at the time. I also have to bear in mind just the, the logistical difficulties that any attorney had to deal with back then, because I mean, good Lord, we didn't, they didn't have internet. They didn't have, um, they didn't, they didn't even have telephones barely at the time. I mean, the amount of preparation that you, you try to do in advance of a trial these days, when you're interviewing witnesses and you're putting together depositions and you're putting all your ducks in the row and making sure that you know exactly what you're going to present and what your witnesses are going to say, you know, it's difficult enough today, but you know, back then when they, when they had no technology, and when those attorneys were arriving in Elizabeth City for the trial for the first time, and in fact, they were probably meeting with the witnesses for the very first time just in the hours before the trial started. It's hard for me to say that I could have done anything better or that I could have done, done much of anything differently. What I, what I have to conclude is that both the defense attorneys and the prosecutors, I mean, they had their, their deck of cards handed to them, such as they were. I mean, the prosecutors had... Uh, they had witnesses who had some credibility issues of their own, and they were dealing with a um, an indictment that was issued, you know, a year and a half after the alleged act. So there, there are some natu- naturally there are some questions of credibility, questions of process that come that are going to occur in people's minds at the time. And of course, the uh, the defense attorneys they had their own problems with a a very very dislikable client and just a uh, a really um, a really emotionally charged crime that was being alleged. So it made for a very interesting courtroom drama. And I would have to say the attorneys did the best they could. And I would say that the the verdict turned out in the way that people would have predicted in the beginning. Um, not to get, a, to get ahead of ourselves, but Mr. Harrison, he was actually found guilty, which is not too surprising considering the when you put together everything that we've just, we've talked about. It, it was just a very colorful, pro, colorful process all along. We will be back again momentarily. All you need is a few minutes to start your day off with something historic when you listen to the This Day in History podcast. Every day there's a new episode for you to listen and learn about what happened that day way back when. Today could be the day a famous mobster met their end or the first milestone for humans in space. Who knows what history today holds? Find out when you listen and subscribe to This Day in History wherever you get your podcasts. That's This Day in History wherever you get your podcasts. The storm broke in Chattanooga one night in 1906 when a young woman was the victim of a violent crime. From that moment, the city knew no peace for four furious years. At the center of the storm was the notorious inmate Dave Edwards. 
who was awaiting trial on murder charges. After a high-profile case threatened to go cold, the desperate county sheriff did the unthinkable by freeing Dave Edwards from jail and deputizing him to track down the fugitive. Reva Steed's Four Years of Fury in Chattanooga, Tennessee, written by Kimberly Tilly, narrated by Samuel Burst, is the most amazing true crime story you've never heard. Listen to Reva Steed's The Audiobook, available on Audible, iTunes, and Amazon. Hi, I'm Matt Albers, host of the Pirate History Podcast. The men and women of the golden age of piracy are some of the most infamous and often misunderstood characters in all of human history. You know their names. Captain Morgan, Anne Bonny, Henry Avery, Mary Reed, Captain Kidd, Blackbeard. But do you know their stories, their real stories? Every week over on the Pirate History Podcast, we explore the real lives of these pirates. We examine what made these pirates sail the high seas in search of plunder and adventure and revenge. The real stories are a lot more complex and a lot more interesting than the stories most of us have been told. If you'd like to hear the stories of the real men and women who went on the account and sailed under the black flag, join us on the Pirate History Podcast. And we have returned again. I wanted to ask you about Margaret Gallup, his other daughter. Would you tell us a little about her and what her possible involvement might have been in all of this? Yes, uh, Margaret Harrison Gallup was the uh, the older daughter of Joshua Harrison. As you recall, um, his, uh, his other daughter was uh, Nina Harrison, who was the teacher in Poplar Branch. But um, Harrison's older daughter was the keeper of a boarding house in Norfolk, Virginia, which is uh, about 60 miles up the road from, uh, from Currituck County. And it was widely rumored that um, Harrison, if he did in fact kidnap the child, he probably, he probably took the boy up to Norfolk and he might have gone to the boarding house that his, that his daughter maintained. And that might have been his hideout, uh, the place where he, he, might have, he might have kept the boy locked up in the attic or something like that when he was trying to collect the ransom from the boy, from the, from the boy's parents. And um, Margaret Gallup, uh, she, uh, she, as you might imagine, she took, she took the stand at the trial and she testified on her father's behalf. Said, oh no, I, uh, I, never, I never saw any sign of the child and my father never, never brought the child to my house or anything like that. And um, the, the newspaper accounts at the time, the way they described her testimony, they, they did not get a favorable impression of her. They remarked that she was uh, she was uh, she was really flaunting herself, and she she was really jovial and flippant with the with the prosecutor when he was uh, when he was questioning her, and um, apparently she uh, just did not did not come come across very well in the eyes of the uh, reporters who were covering the trial, and supposedly just as she was wrapping up her testimony, she she asked a question to the prosecutor, and she said. Well, is there anything else you want to know? You know, I've come a long way to tell my story here, and if there's any, is there anything else that, you know, I can, any other question that I can answer for you? And the prosecutor shot back at her and said, well, there's only one thing, one other thing you can tell me, ma'am. Where is the child? Yeah. You know, indicating, of course, that he, he was not taken in by her, by her, uh, her story and her um, style of dress or anything like that. 
a, a very dramatic moment, yes. Yeah, you, you get the impression that it was dramatic, although I have to admit, and this is this is something that I found when I was um, when I was doing all the research and I was reading all of these old newspaper articles. A lot of the language in uh, newspaper articles back then was just really spare, and news, newspaper writers back then they used a lot a lot of oblique language that's frankly a little bit hard to decipher these days. Some of it is is descriptive enough, descriptive enough that you can get the idea of what they're talking about, but. Uh, it's it's hard to really grasp the full picture of what was going on, uh, and that that was one example, you know, because I don't know I don't know exactly the all the wording of the repartee that went that occurred between Ms. Gallup and the prosecutor, and I would have I, I really wish that I could have had a a printed transcript of the trial itself, which unfortunately didn't exist at the time. But anyway, just uh, we're we're fortunate at least that we did we did have newspapers and a lot of them are available you can find them in the archives and we have that that as a resource at least yeah true so harrison as you've already said is in his mid-60s and he gets a 20-year sentence and evidently not wanting to spend his retirement years behind bars he decides to take his fate into his own hands he did um, you know, this is something that still holds true today when it comes to prison. I mean, people who go to prison for harming children are pariahs. They are not, they are not well-liked by their fellow inmates in prison. And uh, Harrison, I imagine, he, he realized this, and he realized that uh, being an older man in his mid-60s, if, if he was sent to prison, and imprisonment back then meant imprisonment at hard labor was the 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 understanding at the time so he he knew that um prison was not going to work out well for him in uh, in many different ways so as you'd imagine he uh he did have the resources to get his attorneys to appeal the case to the north carolina supreme court and while they were doing that um the court actually allowed him to post a bond so that he could remain out of jail while the appeal was being heard so his attorneys, Charles Acock and his brother-in-law, they, they appealed the case. They gave an impassioned argument before the state Supreme Court, and they said, well, this trial was flawed because of the immense public emotion and prejudice against my client, and the, the courtroom was really just a political rally, and he never had a chance, and so forth. Um, the Supreme Court ruled against them, and they, they upheld the conviction and the sentence. And so Mr. Harrison knew that he was going to have to report to to prison and spend the rest of his life there. So, as you mentioned, he he took his he took affairs into, into his own hands because just a few days before, when I, I think he he realized that the uh, the decision was coming and it wasn't going to do in his favor, so he absconded and he ran off to uh, to Norfolk, Virginia, and he was later found in a hotel there. The uh, local police were able to trace his whereabouts somehow, and they found him and they. The Norfolk police went to his hotel room to take him into custody. And just as they were about to do that, Mr. Harrison took his own life. He, uh, he shot himself with a pistol shot to the head, uh, suicide. And he left a suicide note saying, I'm innocent. I have no idea what happened to that child. I had nothing to do with it. But I'm an old man and I can't do time in prison. So goodbye, cruel world. Yeah. 
So there are a number of, of theories you go into about what might have happened to little Kenneth in the conclusion of your book. So uh, uh, just for a moment, let's assume that the man in the buggy was Harrison, and he had lured Kenneth into the woods, you know, out of spite, his hatred of, of Sam Beasley, and with the intent to demand a ransom to inflict some emotional and financial pain on the Beasleys, but, but not to kill the boy. And it seems like a pivotal moment in his plans where, where things really went wrong was when the witnesses came forward and identified him. Suddenly he was connected to the case, his anonymity was gone, and then it becomes extraordinarily difficult to negotiate a ransom and a release when everyone already suspects you. <laughs> so that witness identification could well have led to the murder of Kenneth Beasley. Yeah, that's, uh, I, that's, that's probably it, in fact. You know, I would tend to think that, um, you know, Harrison, you know, just in those, those first few days after Kenneth went missing, when the rumors started, started appearing in print, people talking about having seen Mr. Harrison, you know, driving away with the child, you know, even though, even though the, the newspapers were reporting it sort of in the abstract, in the, in the hypothetical, just as a rumor, I think, I tend to think that Harrison must have realized at that point that he had been spotted in the act of carrying the child away. He may well have thought initially that if he could just, uh, you know, grab the kid, run off with him and uh, avoid detection at first, you know, if he did that, then he could, you know, communicate with uh, with Beasley and say, all right, well, I've got your kids, so you've messed around with me politically. You tried to shut down my liquor business and so forth, so screw you. I mean, I've got your kids, so you're going to have to pay up. That, that may very well have been his motive at the, motive in the beginning, and he thought he could get, get away with it. He could uh, just uh, maybe extort a quick ransom and do it quietly. I suspect that was probably Harrison's motive in the beginning. Uh, maybe he... I found some evidence, in fact, that he was facing financial trouble, maybe as a result of the, uh, the damage to his uh, bootlegging income. So maybe he really did need some money, and he saw this as a, as a way of doing it. And in the in the process, at the same time, he could you know just exact some revenge on on the Beasley family, whom he whom he despised. So I, I suspect you're you're correct. That probably was the motive in the beginning. But once he realized that he had been spotted, and he knew that the the press were on to him, and he he saw that the you know the newspapers were going to be treating this as a as a sensational case, and they were going to keep. Following it, I think he he realized that he was in a bind, and he had, if he had the child on his hands, uh, the child was evidence of the crime, and this is a, I mean, this is a really horrible thing to contemplate. But he probably figured that he was going to have to dispose of the evidence of the crime, which would mean eliminating the child. So again, that's a that's a horrible thing to thing to consider, and it's a, just a sort of a, a clinical way of expressing it, but. I'm I'm afraid that it, the case probably did turn into a murder, even if murder was not was not the original intent. Now, if, you know, if the if Harrison did dispose of the child and then buried him out in the swamp someplace, it still doesn't account for what what happened in those intervening you know eighteen months. I mean, what was going on between then? I mean, was Harrison actually keeping the child hostage that whole time, still thinking that he was going to release him at some point, or 
did he murder the child? And then, and even after doing that, did he try to extort the ransom from Beasley? And which, I mean, that's, that opens up another, just another, a whole new dimension of uh, cruelty and uh, sadism, you might say. But um, I mean, that, that's still up in the air. I don't, I don't know exactly, exactly how that went down. So I, I still, I speculate that there, there was, there was some attempt to collect the ransom, but I don't know exactly how it went down and exactly when, when it occurred. That's, that's the, the lingering mystery. Yeah. Another part of this that, that bothered me, and, and I'm sure it bothered you too, was his daughter Nina's involvement in all of this. But as you suggest in your book, Joshua Harrison seemed to rule over his family you know, with an iron fist. And Nina was, was likely just following orders, completely unaware that she was putting Kenneth into real danger. Well, that was my impression. Because um, the Harrisons, as far as I could tell, they were a close family. Um, Joshua Harrison, he had, he had the two daughters, and he also had three adult sons who lived nearby and worked on the same farm with him. So they did appear to be a close-knit family, family group. So as you, as you might imagine, I mean, he, he, Joshua Harrison, being the patriarch of this family, he probably, when he, when he told, his, told his children to do something, they probably followed along. So it's it's entirely possible to me that they they might have been have been aware of this of this kidnapping plan that he had if he did in fact have it, and it's conceivable to me that his uh, his daughter being the being the teacher who who knew the child and was you know interacting with him on a daily basis. Again, this is this is really nefarious to contemplate, but was Nina the one who uh, who gave Kenneth that pocket knife? as some sort of inducement to try to get him to uh, wander down into the woods for some reason. Uh, I can't, I, you know, when, when looking at this, I just, I just thought if, if Harrison did it, if he did snatch the child, then how did he, how did he end up meeting with meeting up with the child back in the woods? Was that just by chance? Did Kenneth just happen to wander back in the woods because he wanted to skip school or something like that. And he just happened to meet up with Harrison back there for some, for just as a, as a random encounter. I thought that seemed pretty unlikely. It just seemed to me that there, there was probably some, some type of premeditation in, in the way that that meetup would have occurred back in the woods. And it seemed logical to me that, you know, if Harrison did it, then maybe his daughter was the one who arranged it in some way. Yeah, yeah. And poor little Kenneth. He, he had left his coat in the classroom when he had gone out for recess that day. So if he had simply gotten lost or he had fallen or, or something like that, it's cold in February, even in North Carolina, uh, especially when you're not dressed for it. And there was a point in the trial when some of the searchers were questioned and they claimed that the woods were not, in fact, completely searched. So there is a chance, a small one, I'm sure, but, but a chance that if one of these scenarios had happened, that the remains of Kenneth might still be out there somewhere. Oh, it is, it is possible. And it's, it's interesting, if you were to go to that area today, it's, uh, it's kind of neat because uh, a, lot of that, a lot of that swampland is still there. 
you know, despite the the development in the area, you can you can still get a get a sense for what that topography looked like at the time because a lot of it still still looks that way. And it is, it's it's tidal tidal swamp. And you know, at the on this particular day, it's, it does seem like that a good bit of the of the the area behind the schoolhouse was uh was flooded with the, with water. So, and especially in winter. There was some speculation that uh, Kenneth might have might have wandered back there. He might have slipped on some ice and fallen in and uh, drowned. I also, but in the book, I get into the uh, get into a little bit of the uh, the science of uh, of drowning and um, bodies and what happens to human remains when they're submerged in water and that type of thing. So, my conclusion on that was that if he if he had if he had fallen into the fallen into the water, chances are that the room the remains would have been found. And the same goes with the uh, with if he had just gotten lost in the woods and died from hypothermia, I think the remains would have been found. It's true that the searchers, when they were when they were going through the area, they didn't have any systematic plan for setting out a grid or anything like that. Not not like you would do it today with computer generated uh, maps and GPS and that type of thing. But um, I do tend to think that the the area itself was. Um, it was a small enough area that the searchers probably would have um, they would have found something. And as since they they started the search within an hour or so after Kenneth went missing, I mean they were moving through the woods and they were calling out Kenneth's name and making lots of noise. And I would I would tend to think that if the if the child had been even if he had gotten momentarily lost out in the woods, they would have seen him or they would have heard him or he would have heard them calling his name. And when you, when you take all of that into account, I think it's uh, more likely than not that he did not get lost. I don't think he got lost in the woods, and I don't think he fell in, into the water, with all things considered. So there's plenty of doubt. Uh, I, you can't really conclude anything definitively here, but I, as I express in the book, I think the, the most likely explanation was foul play. Really, that's that's just exclude after excluding all of the less likely possibilities. The chances are slim, I, I know, but if there's someone out there with a metal detector who who wants to search the area for a pocket knife, well, that would that would be a very interesting discovery. Uh, I mean, I have to say, after I mean, after almost 120 years, I can't uh, I can't hold out much hope that you could ever find something like that, um, and I don't think. Um, it you know it would be wonderful if well not wonderful but it would bring bring some sort of resolution if we could find the burial site somewhere. That's an intriguing thought, but I'd, I'd have to I'd have to say that after the passage of this much time, I think that's pretty unlikely. Yeah, for sure. Well, well, this has been so great. Thank you so much for coming back to talk about this case. Both the senator's son and ship of blood are available online and in bookstores. Uh, what, what do you recommend for people who want to reach out to you, find out more about your work? Where do we direct them? Well, by all means, if anyone is interested in um, obtaining the book, the best recommendation I make is to contact my publisher directly and to uh, order directly from my, my publisher, which is known as uh, Beach Glass Books. It's a uh, publishing outfit. It's based in Richmond, Virginia. And the website is www.beachglassbooks.com. Perfect. I will include a link in the show notes. Again, appreciate your time. Thank you so much. 
Yeah, well, it's my pleasure and thank you so much for having me. Once more, I've been speaking to Charles Oldham. He is the author of The Senator's Son, The Shocking Disappearance, The Celebrated Trial, and The Mystery That Remains a Century Later. This has been another episode of the Most Notorious Podcast, broadcasting to every dark and cobwebbed corner of the world. I'm Eric Rivenis, and have a safe tomorrow. My name is Greg Jackson. I'm a historian, professor, and the creator of History That Doesn't Suck, a podcast that provides a complete overview of U.S. history through storytelling, yet keeps the rigor you'd expect in a university class. Starting with 22-year-old George Washington in his first battle, join me for a chronological telling of the United States' story, its unlikely revolution, fractious civil war, tenacious inventors, brave reformers, and more. With more than 100 episodes, you can already binge listen your way through the progressive era. Find History That Doesn't Suck wherever you get your podcasts. Let Mysteries at Midnight be your destination for detective whodunits and captivating mystery stories. You'll hear classic stories like Sherlock Holmes, Agatha Christie's Poirot, and short tales from H.G. Wells, Charles Dickens, Edgar Allan Poe, and others. I'm Christopher, and I read these classic stories in the soothing style of a bedtime story, so you can listen to them in bed when you drift off to sleep. Search for Mysteries at Midnight on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or your favourite podcast app, and follow and subscribe so you don't miss out on new episodes.